Hey, if you have your Bibles, which I am absolutely sure that you do, turn to Isaiah chapter 8. And as I said last weekend, we often read too quickly, certainly when it comes to passages like this, to stop and recognize the comparison that's made here and then begin to see the application for our day is um, quite revealing. A lot of bad things going on here, at least predicted and diagnosed in Israel. Drop down to the end of the chapter. When in verse number 19, this is Isaiah 8, 19, it says, When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Now here's the solution. To the law and to the testimony. Those are the words in Hebrew for the written text, the written inspired text of God. Now, if they don't speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward. They will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Not a good picture here. And it starts with saying people are rushing out to find other avenues through which we can get information from God. Now, when you go to a, uh, a necromancer or a, in verse number 19 there, translated in the NIV, a medium or a spiritist, and they, they chirp or they whisper and they mutter. See, and if you've seen those settings, perhaps some of you have been to those settings, they're trying to get in tune with how the spirits are moving them and what they feel. They're going inward to try and connect with something transcendent. And it's so antithetical to that, to open up a book, to unfurl a scroll, to read a, a sentence in Hebrew in their, in their case, and to comprehend through reading the text what God thinks. And in our day, is that not where we live? People try to figure out what God's will is. They try to figure out what they should do or what God thinks or what God approves of. They go inward or they go to others and they ask them, well, what do you think and how do you feel about it and how are you, how are you moved in this regard? And the answer here is unless they speak according to this word, to the law and to the testimony, they have no light. I mean, they have no light. And I love the way it puts it here. It says they have no light of dawn. There's not even a, a sliver of light. Now, just a few books back, go to the Psalter here to our theme verse for Compass Bible Church, which I don't even need to give you the reference for that because you all know it. Psalm 43. Some of you knew that. It's on that big trailer out back. Have you noticed that? We painted the trailer. Now, look at the imagery here. You want to get connected with God? You want to know God's heart? You want to know God's mind on a matter? We've got to, to, just to tie that imagery together to truth and light. Those are often, obviously, they go together. The light is the analogy of truth. Here's our theme verse for our church, verse number three. Send forth your light and your truth and let them guide me. There's where the compass comes from, right? We get direction. We know what to do. We know what to think. We know what to value. We know what's right and wrong. We know how to prioritize based on the sending forth of God's light and truth. And it doesn't come from our feelings. It doesn't come through something subjective. It doesn't come through what I think or how my friends, you know, counsel goes. If it's just what their impressions are, it's, it's back to the law and to the testimony, to rightly dividing the word of truth. And then, bottom of verse 3, let them bring me 
to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. I mean, it really comes down to this book, and that's what our church is predicated upon. And unfortunately, when we don't have confidence that what we're reading here today is really what God has written and what God has thought, then it undermines our entire authority. And as we get into uh, more on the history of the English Bible and a little bit about translations, you need to understand the reason the English language is full of a plethora, a variety of English translations is because of the principle of Isaiah 8. Because we recognized our spiritual forefathers, unless someone speaks according to this word, the law and the testimony, there's no light of dawn in them. There's no truth there. So it's not about an ecclesiastical authority, a church leadership, a, a voting body, a board. It's about what the, what the scripture says. And we have to be confident that what we have codified in our English Bibles is really in that chain of events from God's mind to our English translations, an unbroken and reliable boulevard from one to the other. So let us pray as we begin and take our final oral exam here, which I won't be able to quiz you on this again for a while, but we've done it enough to where you know it. Let's pray. God, help us tonight as we wrap up our study of how your thoughts, your mind, your perspective on everything, according to the New Testament, that relates to life and godliness. It's been, it's been communicated to us through the apostles and prophets codified in your word, taken through the centuries, translated into our language, and we are privileged to have the light of the law and the testimony the written word of God that gives us light. And when that light goes forth, when it shines forth through preaching, through counsel, through the reading of the text, then God, we have light and it leads us to you. It leads us to your mind. It connects us with you. So we're, we're so thankful. We ought to be more thankful for the privilege of having the word of God, the voice of God himself, your very mind on paper. It's a privilege to have it. And God, as we wrap up this study today, I pray it would be helpful, it would tie some things together, and that this semester of study would end up bearing much fruit as it deepens our confidence in what you've done to get us your mind on paper. God, thanks for tonight. Thanks for this crew. I do appreciate them. I know some can't be here tonight, but we pray, God, that either through the recorded means of the CDs that go out or the mp3s that are downloaded or even those viewing online right now that you administer to many people to help us understand how we got our Bible thank you so much for this study for the privilege of having it for the venue in which we uh, conduct this meeting each week for the food that we ingest before the study God we just thank you for all that you give us in Jesus name amen all right remember this you won't see it for a while you're going to miss it. God's got a thought. It's going to get it in the mind of the apostle or prophet. We call that step Revelation. Revelation. Now, it's in the mind of the prophet and apostle. He's going to put it now on parchment. We call that step God is going to govern that. It's called Theopneustos or God breathed. We like that better. Now, we've got other documents. Why aren't they in God's inspired library? We have to recognize which books are in God's inspired library. We call that step canonicity now we have an obvious 66 volume library of god's thoughts it's got to get through time to us we call that transmission and now we have all those scraps thousands of them 
53,000 and, and a growing number that we're uncovering all the time and we're going to try to reconstruct that original document that we don't have the privilege of having. We call that step textual criticism. Now we have our Hebrew and Greek Bibles. We've got to make sense in our language. We call that translation. And we left off with a hero of the faith that was introduced to some and we dusted off some of your thoughts and memories of John Wycliffe. Do you know how many great men have been named John through history? What a good name that is. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. <laughs> John the Baptist, that's from John chapter 1. John Wycliffe, John Huss, John the Baptist, the Apostle John. A lot of good Johns in church history. Anyway, John Wycliffe, we talked a little bit about him. He translated the Bible, I don't think I gave you this date last week, in 13... 82, and it was him and his buddies, him and his band of, of uh, followers, some of his fellow scholars. What was that group called, by the way? The Lollards. What does Lollard mean? The mutterers, the, 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 the mumblers. They didn't have the privilege. What they were doing is propagating the knowledge of God's word among people that didn't have the erudite education, didn't know Latin. So the... Uh, the Oxford band like to call them the, the Lollards. Praise God for the Lollards. Well, it wasn't too long after all of this was now being distributed and copied that in 1408 it was illegal uh, in, in the kingdom there in England to read the Bible in English. It was outlawed. Anybody caught reading the Bible, anybody caught with Wycliffe's translation of the Bible was uh, liable to punishment before the laws of the land. When people ask, well, how did John Wycliffe die? He was a hated man by many and loved by others, but he died of a stroke peacefully in his bed. His anniversary of his death is coming up here, December 31st, 1384. Now, um, you say, well, the, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church didn't get to him, because remember, that's what it was all about. They were fighting the church powers. Well, in, eight, in 1428, the Catholics dug up his body and burned it. <laughs> we hate him so much. We know he's dead and all, but uh, by decree of the Pope, his body was uh, dug up, it was burned, and then they scattered his ashes in the river 44 years after his death. Now, this was a pivotal moment in history. Obviously, Gutenberg, which we learn about for a variety of reasons, after centuries of painstaking copying, the best of it done either in the Old Testament uh, uh, scribal community or in the monasteries of the medieval church. We now have a fabulous invention called the, uh, the printing press, movable type. And uh, this was an amazing thing. It was the vehicle that would fuel the Reformation. The church was corrupt. The leaders were corrupt. The primary corruption that absolutely tossed most people over the line was the selling of indulgences. And that is, after we've created this heretical belief in a thing called purgatory, that we teach you every good person, no matter how good they might be in their works righteousness, they're still going to go to a place where they're going to be tormented and they're going to be suffering in the afterlife. But if you give us some money to build St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, we'll let Granny out of purgatory a few years early. Church felt they had that much power uh, over this uh, make-believe place called purgatory, and... Uh, Folks were frustrated. Well, the message of the reformers was going, to, uh, was going to be accelerated and made possible 
in a new kind of way, expedited through Gutenberg's printing press. Now, of course, there were a few things printed on his printing press before the Bible, but the first real complete masterpiece, the real uh, the accomplishment of movable type was the Bible, of course, the mo most important book in the world, and it was printed up in Latin, you need to know. Uh, I know we're off the English Bible here, but it plays a pivotal role. The Latin Bible was printed in 1455 by Gutenberg, and there's a lot of history surrounding that, and you know, he had some help, and they split up the work, and uh, very interesting uh, history there that maybe you can take some time to read about. Gutenberg, of course, from Germany. This is 100 years after Wycliffe, and um, we have now 47 extant copies of the Gutenberg Bible. Surely you've heard about the Gutenberg Bibles. They sell at auction, and they have through history. A single page costs 20000 to to $100,000 the last sale of a Gutenberg Bible, which wasn't even a complete Bible. It was done in multiple volumes, three volumes, I believe. And the first volume was sold, uh, I think, to an Asian investor for $5.4 million for a third of the Gutenberg Bible. So if you find one laying around in your German uncle's attic, grab it, bring it to your pastor <laughs> for safekeeping. Gutenberg Bible. What does it look like? Well, look closely here. Uh, we are looking a lot like what the scribes were doing with the Latin Bible, but they've done it nice and neat and nice perfect rows. And of course, we have modern print, which we're so used to today. But here is a copy um, of... It took me a while to figure this out, but this is 2 Chronicles 23, verse 1. 2 Chronicles 23, for what that's worth. But a great little snapshot of the Gutenberg Bible. Now, of course, talk about the Reformation. Uh, Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation, we call him, because he had all the concerns that would reach an apex after the printing press was now in place with a guy named Martin Luther, not the guy the streets up in L.A. are named after, you understand. Martin Luther. Martin Luther uh, lived, just to give you a frame of reference here, from 14... 83 to 1546. Now, of course, he was a part of the system. He was studying to be an Augustinian monk, and uh, yet he was increasingly frustrated the more he studied Galatians and Romans in particular with the corruption of the church, the sale of indulgences, and the attitude that you don't need to read the Bible, uh, you lowly people. Just listen to the, to the priests and the leaders of the church, and you'll be okay, and we can make up our doctrines as we go along. And he also recognized that uh, the solution was the same as Wycliffe's, and that is, if you get the Bible in the hands of the people, they can begin to compare their teachers to the written word of God, and they'll realize, hey, this doesn't add up. And that's exactly uh, what happened. And though Luther wanted to reform the church, obviously, there was a gigantic break in the church. Well, his big accomplishment for his uh, kinfolk was translating the Bible uh, into German. And, um, of course, that's another very valuable piece of church history uh, that floats around from time to time, the uh, Martin Luther German Bible. I'd love to say more about Martin Luther, but for the sake of time, and we'd like to finish tonight, uh, I assume you know some things about Martin Luther. Uh, the reason he comes up in the history of the English Bible is because he was the catalyst, and under the umbrella of his powerful leadership, uh, we had now the opportunity for the English Bible to be propagated. 
Uh, one more guy that may not seem like it's part of the history of the English Bible that we need to know about is a guy named Erasmus of Rotterdam. And Erasmus was a Dutch scholar, uh, and he was prob- he's probably in the minds of the average person who attends church the most underrated part of the Reformation. Uh, We hear his name tossed around as it relates to the Greek New Testament, but we don't recognize how important his work really was. Uh, He was over in Cambridge uh, as a scholar, uh, and he was a genius uh, in languages, and he was commissioned to uh, put together a translation of the... uh, Actually, it was his passion, and he wanted to put together a translation of an improvement on the Latin Vulgate. And to do that, what he, what he produced was a diglot, a, a, a two-language work that had a, what he called a revised and improved Latin text, which you can see right away, the Catholics aren't going to like that, to improve on something they'd been using, uh, and though it had been revised since Jerome, I mean, he was doing a major overhaul on the Latin Vulgate. Well, alongside, to justify his changes to the Latin Vulgate, he printed for the very first time a Greek New Testament and in in parallel columns. And what he did to try and get to his ultimate end game to to take the Latin Bible and to make it as accurate as possible, uh, he took what he could get his hands on in terms of Greek manuscripts and produced the first critical edition of the Greek New Testament. And that meant that it wasn't just a copy from a singular copy, it was really a serious scholastic work by a Cambridge scholar to put together all the manuscripts he could get his hands on uh, to put into a Greek New Testament. Why is that so important? Uh, Because every English Bible in the rash of English Bibles that are now going going to be reproduced in this period of of the Reformation were all based on Erasmus' work. What Erasmus did in his little cloistered office in Cambridge, I've had had the opportunity to visit that. It's it's a chilling thing if you know how important that room was where he translated the Greek New Testament. I mean, he translated, read translated the Latin text from a newly constructed critical edition of the Greek New Testament. It was huge because everyone used it. As a matter of fact, that was the standard Greek New Testament on which every translation was based uh, for about 200 years, maybe more, uh, until we started to see some major revisions, uh, more like 300 years in the 1800s. Now, the great thing about Erasmus, and if you ever get a chance to read uh, some things about Erasmus, you'll realize he wasn't just a dutiful uh, you know, scholar in Cambridge. He really did share the concerns of the Reformation. He felt like there was corruption in the church and he wanted it fixed. Uh, he did what he could uh, in his work, which was pivotal in God's plan, uh, but you can read his, uh, his heart in many of his writings, and he was prolific. He really wanted the Bible in the hands of the people, which was the cry of the Reformation. If we want a church that is functioning properly, it needs to be functioning according to the law and the testimony, because if you don't function according to that, you're operating in utter darkness. So we've got to get the Bible in the hands of the people. Here's one quotation from Erasmus's writings. Christ wishes his mysteries to be published as widely as possible. I wish that they were translated into all languages of all Christian people, that they might be read and known. I wish that the farmer might sing parts of them at his plow and the weaver at his shuttle. That was anathema in the minds of the hierarchy of the church because they knew they were running a scam (laughs) and they didn't want people 
uh, undermining their authority by reading the Bible for themselves. It was kind of a don't ask me questions, just trust me on this. And whenever leaders say that, you, that's, that's the wrong uh, kind of leadership. You need people that are always open to saying test these things according to the word of God. So Erasmus, uh, the more you read about him, I think the more you like. He wasn't a, uh, you know, a perfect uh, Christian by any means, but a very helpful one and one that shared the heart of the Reformation. Okay, if you're getting, there's a lot of names I'm throwing at you, but if you can remember two, would you please remember uh, John Wycliffe and William Tyndale? <laughs> Those are the two most important people that you'll want to stand in line to meet when you are in the New Jerusalem. Uh, you know, you'll be in the English group, um, and, and you'll want to meet these two guys. William Tyndale, he's the guy whose picture I think I did put at the bottom of the page. Is there some resemblance there, I would hope? Not the same picture. Yeah, looks pretty much the same, wearing the same outfit. He was not at Cambridge. He was at Oxford. He was an Oxford professor. And what he did that was unique, now remember, Wycliffe translated the Bible into English for the Lollards and really fueled the Reformation. But he did it from Latin. Remember that? And uh, it was not... It didn't have the advantage of, move, of Gutenberg's movable type. We didn't have Erasmus's critical Greek New Testament. Now you put all those things together, you got now a movement that Martin Luther has gotten going. You got a printing press now that's able to print Bibles. You got a Greek New Testament now that at least been weighed by different Greek manuscripts, most of them late. There's really none earlier than the 12th century. But still, you got a somewhat critical Greek New Testament. And now you've got a guy that is able, with his ability and his team, to translate the Bible into English for the first time from Greek with the advantage of Gutenberg's movable type. So in 1525, we have the English translation of the New Testament from Greek, and the Old Testament was not far behind it. Now, this had credibility. This had people excited. This had Christians who were saying, I'm finding problems because I'm reading Tyndale's, I'm sorry, uh, Wycliffe's Bible uh, with the church, but I'd sure like to make sure that what Tyndale is, or what uh, Wycliffe has given me here is really accurate. Now we've just upped the ante with a very reliable English translation and the ability to spread it like wildfire because of the printing press. So the Catholic Church in England frustrated, angry, they were red, hot, or white, I guess is what we say, right? White, hot, anger, that's what I want to say, right? And they just could not hate, they could not hate William Tyndale enough. First thing they did was they banned the Bible in England. You could not be found, if you were found with William Tyndale's translation of the Bible, it was bad enough to have Wycliffe's version, but if you had William Tyndale's version of the English Bible, it was like a... a uh, you know, it was like the plague. It was banned. They had to smuggle them in to try and keep the reform of the church going in England. Uh, Tyndale, of course, was run out of town. He ended up going to Germany to end up printing his Bible. He got as many people as possible involved in that. And, of course, the church finally got a hold of him. I say the church, the Roman Catholic Church, and they burned him at the stake. Uh, and there's some very famous pictures of that. I probably should have put some of those out there. Um, as his Bible continued to be smuggled into England, oh, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll tell you a few other things about this. They smuggled them into England. Uh, the Old Testament came along, 
in, uh, that's a typo. I'll look that up for you. We call him the father of the English Bible. He was burned at the stake. No, that is right. 1535. That's correct. Because he finished that a year before he, he was burned at the stake. I'm sorry. New Testament, 1525. Old Testament, 1535. Correct. Burned at the stake, 1536. And you might remember, if you've ever seen any pictures from church history, I mean, there's a few perpetua being fed to the lions in, uh, in the Colosseum, uh, and William Tyndale being burned at the stake in Fox's Book of Martyrs has made that uh, very popular in America. Fox's Book of Martyrs, behind Pilgrim's Progress in the Bible, was the third highest selling book. Your, if your forefathers came over on the, you know, the, the, the Mayflower, uh, they had tucked away probably a Bible, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and John Fox's, there's another John, John Fox's Book of Martyrs. And in that, they show Tyndale being burned at the stake, uh, saying, Lord, open the eyes, uh, open the King of England's eyes, which of course happened after his death and everything changed in England. But he was the most hated man uh, during this period. And we've all been, at least I have, John's office is near mine. Uh, John Benzinger got an actual page from an early edition of, John, of Fox's Book of Martyrs that he found at a bookstore. I love this story. And, uh, you know, a lot of these people sell pages from these old, you know, works. It happened to be the picture. It happened to be the page on which Tyndale's story ends and the picture of Tyndale being burned at the stake was inscribed on. So a reason to drop by John's office and visit his office to see that very valuable picture. William Tyndale. His um, Bible, you may not know this, but if you've ever read a King James Bible, you've read William Tyndale's Bible for the most part. Uh, some say it's as high as 90% in the New Testament, but overall, about 80% of the verbiage, the language, the vocabulary, the translation work of William Tyndale and his team ends up in the King James Version of the Bible. So this is a gigantic accomplishment, 80 plus percent. It looks like this. This is uh, obviously a little bit later uh, edition when it was colorized, but most of them were, I forget how many woodcut and copper pictures were actually printed on these Bibles, but several, most of them came with pictures. But um, an amazing accomplishment, all under the ban of the king and of the kingdom and of the pope. Yes. Did, did the Reformation gain momentum from reading the text? Absolutely. Oh yeah, it was huge. It was huge, and the church knew it, and that's why they had to ban it. That's why this book was hated, because if people got their hands on Tyndale's Bible, it was like they now had, you know, they, they had the, 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 the fuel for them to stand up and rebel against the church. Uh, and that's why, much like Martin Luther, William Tyndale was such a pivotal figure. You either loved him or hated him, but no one was neutral about him. I mean, most leaders, you know, revolutionary leaders are that way. And, um, and this was huge. By the way, I got to tell you the story of, of uh, Tyndale's Bible. Remember, they, there was nothing they didn't, I mean, talk about contraband. There was nothing England didn't want in their, in their kingdom, in their country, more than William Tyndale's Bible. It was absolutely the absolute worst thing that you could, you could possibly be caught with bringing into the country. Here's a little irony for you. There are not many copies left. 
there are two known copies of the 1526 Verms printing, which is as old as we can, you know, we have extant. One is at St. Paul's Cathedral um, and, uh, in, in London. And, and then the other one was purchased by the Bristol Baptist College. Um, it was purchased from them, rather. They had that in their archives for some reason by uh, the British Library for a million pounds. Uh, this was not too long ago. This was 1993. Uh, the Amer- there's an American group of, of investors and scholars that wanted to buy William Tyndale's 1526 Verms edition of, of the Bible. Uh, but the English government scurried real quick to pass a law in the middle of this uh, process of putting this up for auction and said, we will not allow a non-English entity, group, or partnership, or person, or collector to buy this Bible and take it out of the country. So the Bible that no one wanted in the country now could not, by an American investors group, be bought and extracted from the country. Uh, It's one of the prized possessions that it took an act of parliament to keep it in the country in 1993, which I think is hilarious. All right. One more guy that you need to know about, Miles Coverdale, not quite as important as Tyndale, but a great politician with a really bad neutral look on his face. Of course, Henry VIII had some problems, as you remember, and um, church would not grant him that divorce that he so badly wanted. And uh, upon the whole turnaround there with Anne Boleyn and all that, there, there was a fantastic political maneuver by Miles Coverdale because this was the debate. If you really wanted reform in the church, you liked William Tyndale and you wanted his Bible to succeed. Well, Coverdale took the opportunity with the divorce of the king to get this Bible actually printed in England. Uh, He did it through a lot of channels, through his political savvy. But ultimately, the thing that, that won this thing over was he printed this thing and dedicated it to the queen, Anne Boleyn, the new wife of the king. Um... It was the first printed and distributed Bible in England that was done with the blessing of the government. It wasn't an authorized version, so to speak, but it was a allowed version thanks to the political savvy of Miles Coverdale. There's one more Bible that's worth mentioning, Matthew's Bible. A guy named John Rogers here in 1537. You can see the rash of English Bibles coming out, which most of them, by the way, they looked a lot like William Tyndale's Bible. I mean, there was very little variation. What happens now is they start to diversify as they start to be produced with notes in the margin. Anyway, John Rogers, 1537, publishes a Bible, uh, and it was actually with the king's decree. It was literally the first authorized version of the Bible, Matthew's Bible. Cromwell calls Coverdale to revise the Matthew Bible, Matthew's Bible, and it re- results in the Great Bible. I just want to mash all these together and these are all known as different things. The Great Bible, Cromwell's Bibles, Cramner's Bible, the Chained Bible, uh, which is my favorite one, because these now were produced by the church and the Church of England, which is now newly Protestant because of the policies of the king. Uh, they all got a Bible. Every church now got a Bible in English. Well, we had had the Latin Vulgate in the Bibles that the priests were privileged to read, but now we had a Bible in every church. Now, if you wanted to read the Bible in your language, you had to go to church, and they put them on stands, and because they didn't want them stolen, they chained them to a post or a podium. And so this was why it, it picked up the name called the, the Chained Bible. 
And because the Bible in English caused such a stir in the Anglican church, they, um, they came up with these admonitions of how you could read the Bible, which if you ever get a hold of a book on the history of the English Bible, it, it's, a, it's fun to read. You know, you can't cause a stir. You can't read it loudly. You must read it quietly. Uh, you can't draw attention to yourself. You can't comment on the text. You can just sit there and read it quietly. And if you want to read it for your family, you read it at a whisper tone and don't distract anybody. Uh, because even though the church now was in favor of authorizing English Bibles, uh, they wanted it to be done very quietly without disturbance. Now, everything's about to lead right into the King James Bible. And to get there, we've got to talk about the Geneva Bible. While the church in England was undergoing all kinds of transformation, the fight and the back and forth ping pong in the leadership of the, of the church, returning now to a Catholic leadership, uh, it squirted or pushed all of the reformers, the true and heavy-hitting reformers, now Calvin, Beza, all these guys, they split and go to Switzerland in Geneva. And they're now really dead set against the state getting all tied up in the church because, of course, the king wants to be the preeminent one, the leader of the church, and the church and state thing. Here were the reformers saying, this isn't a good idea to have the church and the state all intertwined. Catholic Church is bad enough, but this whole, even the Church of England thing, it's, it's not right. It needs to be fixed. There needs to be a break. So these guys all have to go out of the country there. These guys are hated now, the, the heavy hitters and, and scholars of the Reformation. They flee England in 1560, and they produce, for the first time, which was a, a good thing uh, and also a double-edged sword, and it caused them a lot of opposition, the first study Bible because they added extensive notes on every page. Uh, and, and the Geneva Bible, even if you're reading in Leviticus, probably has, if the page is this big, it'll probably have at least two and a half inches of notes. And if you're in Romans, it'll have, you know, 60% of the page is notes. Uh, it was a full-blown study Bible, just like your study Bible. Well, of course, the Reformers on every passage uh, were dispensing their views on the church, including the fact that, you know, you shouldn't have a state-run church, and the pope is not right, and the kings should not be the leaders of the church. And, of course, the people were saying, well, this is taking the Reformation where we want to go. If the church is going to be a pure church based on the Word of God, that's where we need to be. You can see the heritage that we have in America that came from the Reformers. Well, that caused um, uh, a lot of problems. Oh, more on this. Uh, Calvin, Beza, Knox, John Knox, there's another good John, by the way. John Knox and others uh, did the notes on this. This, by the way, if you want to talk about an American English Bible tradition, you are in this lineage, if you call yourself an American. Uh, it was the Bible of Shakespeare that highly influenced America. It was the Bible of the pilgrims. When I talk about them bringing Pilgrim's Progress and John Fox's Book of Martyrs and a Bible across the ocean, it wasn't... Uh, William Tyndale's Bible, uh, though it was probably 80% contained in this, it had on its cover and title page the Geneva Bible. Because it was a Bible, of course, that the pilgrims were going to prefer hands down. Why? Because we're not interested in the king running the church. We want freedom of religion. Not freedom from religion, by the way. Did you hear about the third grader that got sent home or chided or told not to read his Bible in free reading time? That, what was that, yesterday? 
Or how about the kids' program back east? Did you read this one where they were taught to sing in their Christmas play that Allah is God? Yeah. And uh, when it came to the, it was supposed to be an inclusive, don't get me started on this, but when it came to the inclusive part on what they could sing about Christmas, it was really lame and weak. Look it up. You can read what these kids were taught to sing in school. And finally, some involved parents shut it down. So that was good. But school defended it. Just trying to be inclusive. Well, you can't sing Jesus is Lord at your uh, kid's Christmas thing, but we're singing that Allah is, is God, the true God. That's Something's wrong with that. Where were we? Pilgrim's Bible, Geneva Bible. I, I, that may seem scary to you. You say, well, I'm not a hardcore Calvinist. Well, the Geneva Bible is really the key historical fountainhead of where we have come from as American evangelical Protestant Christians, if you would call yourself that or know what those things are. Now, there was a response to the Geneva Bible, as you might imagine. Eight years later, the Church of England, the Anglicans, said, well, we don't like the Geneva Bible because that doesn't make us feel good. So under Queen Elizabeth's leadership now in 1586, 1568 rather, they produce a Bible that really is purely a Church of England Bible. Now, again, the text is almost identical. Do you see the proliferation of Bibles at this point is really not about the text anymore because Erasmus's Greek New Testament is the source for all of this. So we're translating basically the same text, but the marginal notes are now different. It's like the Schofield Bible or the Ryrie Study Bible or the, you know, the whatever. We're, there's battles between the notes and the Bishop's Bible was, uh, was the one that uh, the Queen, of, Queen Elizabeth wanted. It was a response to the Geneva Bible, dedicated, of course, to the Queen. Now you're thinking, what are all those Catholics doing at this point? They're going crazy. <laughs> and they're thinking, well, now the Protestants are fighting with each other about which Bible they should use, and we're still telling our followers, don't read the Bible, right? Now the Catholics are catching on. They're saying, now my friend down the street, if he goes to a Protestant church, whether it's a Church of England or some, you know, Calvinistic reformer church, some Puritan church, they got their Bibles and they get to read their Bibles and we don't in our language. So there was enough of a stir that they had to produce a Bible. So one more Bible we need to know about in the English tradition is the Douay Rhymes Bible that was a response, a reluctant response, which is an important word to add, to the proliferation of English Bibles by the Roman Catholics. And they said, well, we'll give you a Bible, but guess what kind of Bible it's going to be? A study Bible. And on the notes, we're going to respond to the Bishop's Bible, and we're going to respond to the Geneva Bible, because we don't like either of those Bibles. Now, the difference here is, I think I wrote this down. Yeah, I'll keep going here. 1582, uh, in Douai, France, no, in Rheims, France, the New Testament is completed, and in 1609, in Rheims, France, the uh, Old Testament is completed. It is translated not from Erasmus's work, who was sympathetic to the Reformation. It was translated from the Latin text from the old Vulgate, Jerome's Vulgate, or revisions of Jerome's Vulgate. It, by the way, became the standard for Catholics for years. Matter of fact, if you have a grandparent that's an old-school Catholic, they probably have on their shelf a Douay Rheims Bible. Forget the Jerusalem Bible, or the American Bible, or all those other Catholic translations. They want the Douay Rhymes, because that's like carrying around a King James Bible for a Protestant. So, we got three big Bibles now going around. Geneva Bible, right? Those 
those nonconformist, non-church state people. We got the Bishop's Bible, the church state people, and then we got the Douay Rhymes, which is just, they're saying, we'll give you a Bible, but don't read it. And if you're going to read it, read the notes mostly, <laughs> uh, which is what was going on in the Catholic Church at the time. Read it. I've read, I have a 1582 facsimile of the Douay Rhymes New Testament. And the intro is almost hilarious as it tries to introduce, most introductions of the book want to make you read the book, right? Not this one. I mean, this is like, well, you know, you don't really need this, but here it is. And be careful with it. You know, that's the Douay Rhymes intro, and you should read the original introduction to it. I have it in my office. Come by and check it out. Now, here it is. You're at the bottom of the page at this point, I would think. That was, that was a lot for page 63, wasn't it? You wanted to get here because this, this is the last part of this. King James Bible. Now, you've heard of that one. This is probably a throwaway line. You don't even need to write it down. But ultimately, and I've already given you this information, Tyndale's Bible, which really came through into the Bishop's Bible, Geneva Bible had a little bit more scholarly input on the translation, so it had differences, but not much, was really the parent of the King James Bible. Now, give you the history here. There's a fight in the Church of England. They don't give a rip about the Douay Rhymes Bible, but they do care a lot about the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible. Now, King James assumes the throne, King James, and he is now wants desperately to be the king of, uh, of the head of the church. Problem is, the guys that really have power in England, in the Protestant circles, now that we have again this ping-pong flip-flop back to a Protestant kingdom, are the Puritans. And the Puritans love the Geneva Bible. They love the Geneva Bible because they love the notes in the Geneva Bible, and they are sympathetic to the Geneva Bible. Well, King James isn't going to like the Geneva Bible. So there's a guy in the Hampton Court in the southwest corner of London. They hold this court, uh, and, and the, uh, John Reynolds steps up, and he says, almost out of the blue, at least this is how history goes down, why don't we have a new Bible? Because he knows King James is not going to support the Geneva Bible. And the Puritan, it's what John Reynolds is, he was the president of uh, Merton College at Oxford. He says, listen, we don't want the Bishop's Bible. Because we, uh, uh, we don't want all that stuff that goes with it. So he politically says, let's create a new Bible. And King James, everyone's just one of those situations where you're all quiet. And, and King James is there. And he says, yes, it's a good idea. And his line in history was, I've, ne I've yet to read a well-translated English Bible, which is nonsense. But he said, fine, we'll do, we'll do a new one. Well, really, all we were new now doing is trying to create a Bible that the Church of England folks, the hardcore Anglicans, and the Puritans, the non-church state people, could all agree on. Well, what did that mean? Well, let's basically take the Tyndale's text and strip it of all of its notes that make it feel like a Puritan Bible or an Anglican Bible, and we'll create kind of a middle-of-the-road Bible with, with lesser notes that relate to any partisan. It's, the, it's an ecumenical, peace, political Bible. Puritans like Geneva, King did not. Suggested a new translation, said all that. So we have the King James Bible produced, 1611. Looks like this when it comes off the press. Not quite what our King James Bibles look like today. Spelling is still Middle English in some ways. And, and you need to know this, for the, and I just, I'll take a little parenthetical moment to talk about the, uh, 
King, King James only folks, they always say, and I, I have them coming to my office, and they say, 1611 King James Bible. Well, what they have in their hands is not a 1611 King James Bible, because it looks like this, it reads like this, and it is very different. It went through many revisions. Matter of fact, what people are carrying around as a 1611 Bible is really a 1769 revision and there was many revisions between 1611 and 1769, but they pretty much had it standardized by 1769. And the King James Bible of your grandmother or your father or yours is really from uh, 1769, which is quite a few years after 1611. And if I were good with math, I'd tell you exactly how many years apart that was. 80 plus percent correspondence with Tyndale. Some say 90% mathematically, 90% in the New Testament. Now, Follow me on this, not just because it's fun to, to, to look at, but n notice the logic here. And again, I just parenthetically want to talk to the King James only folks. There are several mistakes in the early printings of the King James Bible. Several. Some are notorious, like this one. Verse 36, this is Matthew 26, 36. And it's supposed to say, Then comes Jesus with them unto the place called Gethsemane. And he saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray. The typo is right here. It doesn't say Jesus. It says Judas. That ain't right. Okay? Or how about this? This was a 1631 edition of the Bible. Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> I mean, these were printed over and over and over again. Or this one is hard. I couldn't get a very good picture of this one. I scanned this, front, this one, but... Uh, know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God. This is a 1653 edition. I give these examples because the guy who comes and waves his Bible thinking he's got a 1611 King James Bible in his hand, and I say, you don't. You have a late 18th century King James Bible in your hand. When I try to reveal that to him and I say, your Bible, here's the logic, has needed a form of textual criticism to reach a standardization 100 plus years later, see? They're going to be comfortable with that in, for some reason, but they're not comfortable with the same principles being applied to the Greek New Testament from which it's translated. Do you follow that? Therefore, if, it's if we're not all carrying around 1611 King James Bibles and you're willing to have 27 plus major revisions, right? And you're going to recognize that there were errors in the printing that needed to be fixed. See, you're changing your English Bible so your providential argument just went away, right? God has providentially given us this. Well, wait a minute. It took a lot of people going, wait a minute, change that. That's not right. That's a mistake. That needs to be fixed. God expects us to use our minds, our brains, to be able to put together a proper reflection of what was intended that's the that's the process of textual criticism and to have a guy come in and wave his bible in my face and say the 1611 king james that's god's providential word you can't change a thing in it I, I i can only laugh because you don't understand how much textual criticism from the point of initial translation to the end of the 18th century we had until we standardized this text you see and if you believe in the providential argument, I guess Judas was in the garden asking the disciples to pray. See? Why don't you stick with that? God providentially gave us. Oh, no, we've got to fix that. Why? Because it's obviously a mistake. And so is a late edition in 1 John chapter 5. 
but you don't want to do that. See, it's an illogical position. So I just say that, just so you know, the King James Bible went through many revisions. And what was the date I gave you there? I don't see it anymore here. 17, uh, yeah, that was when we finally standardized something that's pretty much been the same. Although there have been some interesting, if you read far enough down in the history of the King James Bible, mistakes in the printing since then that have been humorous. But uh, those are some of the bigger ones. The unrighteous inheriting the earth, committing adultery as a command, and Judas praying in the garden. There's about 20 of those you can find floating around in the first 100 years of the King James Bible. All right, if you want to read more on this, which I hope that you will, I'm only giving you the, what I think are some of the best. If you're a visual learner, this is a visual learner. This is a fantastic, fun-to-read book called A Visual History of the English Bible. It'll give you all the stories and drama that I didn't have time to talk about, but a very enjoyable book. You'll like this one a lot. If you don't need the pictures and you want a guy who can write really well about the history of the King James Bible, Alistair McGrath, who uh, teaches at the Tyndale House in, at Oxford, if you're not familiar with him, tells the story of the King James Bible. That's a good read. Uh, and then if you want the big daddy of them all, which I've been reading this semester, it's uh, this thousand-page uh, David Daniels, the, the Bible in English, well-written book and, uh, and a lot of fun to read, but not many pictures. So big book, heavy book. Carry that one around. It looks like you're reading something. All right. Can we do this just as quickly as we can possibly do it? Page 64. Evaluation of today's popular translations. King James. There's a couple bullet points on each of these. Obviously, and you've gotten this point, it doesn't utilize all existing manuscripts. It's outdated English. Okay? Other than that, great Bible. But those are the two hits there. New King James. Well, we fixed the outdated English part. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Much more understandable English, but unfortunately they didn't change their philosophy of translation. It's just the same reworked uh, English. I mean, it's the same textual basis. For instance, I, I talk about Erasmus's Bible. First John chapter 5 we looked at. There wasn't a single Greek manuscript that had that, and, and Erasmus did not put it in his Greek New Testament when he was working on the Latin revision. And people came to him because it was in some late Latin translations. And he said, if I can find a single Greek manuscript, this is an interesting little controversy and conspiracy in this period, because people wanted the Latin text to stand. He said, if I could find a single Greek manuscript that had 1 John 5 in it, the three are one, remember, Father in heaven and the Word and the Spirit bear witness, he said, I'd put it in there. Somebody hand wrote a copy of the Greek text. It was later discovered and took it to Erasmus. And he went ahead and put it in his, in his work with an asterisk and a bracket, uh, and it was discovered later that that was a newly copied Greek manuscript in Erasmus's day. But anyway, all I'm saying is nothing was changed from Erasmus's work here uh, on what was known as the Texas Receptus in the New King James. NIV, you're familiar with that, 1965, all new translation, thought for thought translation, very popular, so popular, it was one of those, if you can't beat them, join them, when I was early in the ministry and been preaching out of that for a lot of years. Not a bad translation. It's well done in many places. It's just uh, the problem with it is it's being replaced in 2011, and it won't be around as we know it anymore. More on that later. New American Standard Bible. Some of you love that. I know that. I know you like it. Very literal. It's a 1970s rework of the American Standard Version. 
A uh, couple things I don't care for. One is the real wooden grammar, especially in the Old Testament. Very hard to read in some places. And I don't like the reverting back to Old English pronouns, these and thous, when it comes to addressing God. It just seems so bizarre and artificial, but they made that decision in the Lockman Foundation translation team. You've noticed that in your old NAS, right? If disciples are talking to one another, it's you and yours. If we're talking to God in direct address, it's thee and thou, which I don't understand why we would do that. Uh, the RSV, Revised Standard Version, 1952 rework of the American Standard Version. It was bold. It didn't care about tradition. And it, for instance, in, in John 8 and Mark 16, we looked at those late editions in the Byzantine uh, text. They didn't, they didn't care if they offended people. They took them out, which is bold and great, but it just uh, it, it ruffled a lot of feathers, and most people saw the Revised Standard Version as Satan's version, and it was uh, not well received by conservative Christians. And it had problems for most people, like when it translates the Hebrew word for virgin uh, as young lady, because the Hebrew word can mean that. The uh, problem is the Septuagint, translated before the time of Christ, uses a word that can't mean young lady. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says virgin, one who hasn't had sexual relations with a man. Uh, but the RSV stuck with an allowable translation of that Hebrew word, young lady. She'll be with child, right? That was the sign. New Revised Standard was a revision, obviously, of the RSV. Uh, it was the first translation, well, at least in that line of English translations to consider the Dead Sea Scroll readings and it pitched a few of the trans a few of those very few questionable texts uh, in the Old Testament over to read in sync with the Dead Sea Scrolls and some more manuscript discoveries from 1952 so it, it became for a lot of people the scholars Bible it was been preferred in a lot of seminaries across the country and the English was updated from the RSV really wasn't a bad translation, although people still complained about certain spots where it may not, you know, I don't think the new RSV either um, translated that Hebrew word virgin. It translated it young, young woman, and people didn't like that because she wasn't just a young woman. The Living Bible, you know that one, don't you? Boy, that was popular when I was a kid. My first Bible was a Living Bible. Ken Taylor's. I've told you this story already. He was on the L train. He worked at Moody Press downtown. He lived in Wheaton. He used to drive, ride the L train, the elevated train into town before it turned into the subway. I know it well. He used to ride it every week. And uh, he would translate his Bible, um, which I think he said was a King James Bible. He would translate it for his kids. Uh, and he'd paraphrase it for his children. This got a huge boost of speed when uh, Billy Graham got his hands on it and started distributing at his crusades. The reason you probably had a living Bible and became so popular was because it kind of went through that Hot Wheels powerhouse with the foam wheels. <laughs> Sorry. And here it goes. Did you have Hot Wheels as a kid? Did you have one of those with those foam wheels spun around? Well, as soon as the Ken Taylor's work got distributed by Billy Graham on the largest stages in, in the evangelical world, it took off like wildfire, living Bible. How many of you owned a living Bible at one time? In your, yeah, wow, very successful. New Living Translation, this is more recent, 1996. Uh, it was inspired by the living Bible. As a matter of fact, they wanted to do a revision of the living Bible and it ended up becoming something more unique 
in that it was more independent and it went back and actually did translation work. Second edition that came out that was largely revised was in 2004, carries the same name, the NLT, the Living Bible. I'm sorry, the New Living Bible, which really is a new translation and it's very obviously uh, thought for thought, not, not a formal equivalent. Phillips, I've quoted that one enough, and since it's so fun to quote, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the Phillips translation. J.B. Phillips, what's his first name? John. Hey, is it John? There you go. I don't remember if it's John or not. J.B. Phillips was a college pastor in London, very successful college pastor, big college program in his church, and uh, he decided to basically paraphrase the Bible into what he called, uh, you know, the language of the people. This got a boost from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis got a hold of it, and I think his line was, when he read Colossians, he said, I thought I'd read Colossians before until I read J.B. Phillips, and now I've really read it. Or some statement like that, as only an Oxford scholar could say it, and everyone then needed to have a J.B. Phillips translation. That's why we probably still have that one on the radar. The Good News Bible. The Good News Bible. Now, this has been called a lot of things. It's been called Good News for Modern Man. It's been called the uh, TEV, Today's English Version. Uh, a lot of the Calvary chapels used to use this one um, in the early days. It's a very loose and interpretive translation. I mean, not even in the middle of a thought for thought. Some of you are familiar with the Amplified Bible, K, letter K, Amplified Bible. Maybe you don't know that in 1965, this was done by a lady named Frances Seiwert, and um, she was married to a very, she went to Princeton, Princeton grad, loved theology, loved uh, languages, and she married a language buff, and although she did all the work, I guess, I don't know, she just asked him questions from time to time, but she produced this um, very interesting, which is really more of a linguistic tool than a translation. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the uh, the Amplified Bible? You've, you've had that one? It's got, it doesn't read well, but it's helpful because it's like a mini definition and uh, it's really well done. It's, it's not really a translation you would read from, but it's a one to consult and done by this gal who was really sharp. Uh, New Century Version. That is a dynamic equivalent, middle of the road, simplified English. Uh, and one of the concerns people have had about this, guys like Grudem and others, is that it's really, one of its goals was to be gender inclusive as much as possible. And when it started to drift into areas where, you know, never called God a woman, obviously, but it was enough of a concern of people to say, well, we're not, we're not big on, on that one, at least in a lot of conservative circles. The contemporary English version, the CEV, this is pretty popular. Uh, this was a 1991 American Bible Society project, so it had a lot of momentum from the very beginning. And the goal of the contemporary English version was to get as simple as possible. It was um, to try and have very basic vocabulary. And I think this one's trying to, it shoots for like a fifth grade English level. It's very low, very simple. The message, which we've had fun with in this uh, lecture series, just with a few quotations. This is the 2002 Eugene Peterson paraphrase. And while he does know languages and he's a well-educated man, this is really not a um, serious translation. Uh, he actually is quoted as saying, my goal was to give it a street language. 
And while it's not the African Her- Heritage Bible, right, uh, he, what he wanted, and the reason he did that, his, his explanation was this was written in the street language of, of, of the Greeks of the first century. Therefore, we should make this as street, you know, as, as, as colloquial as possible, as, as, you know, hey dude, as possible. So that's why it has such funny um, translations at times, paraphrases. Fourth grade reading level, by the way, on this, it's about as low as anyone out there today. Uh, the problem with this, not only is it very interpretive, but the big problem with this, if you read it as a Bible, you need to know he's adding details all the time, right? Like, what I think we read uh, James, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And he says, say out loud, no to the devil or whatever. Well, pff, that's not there, but, you know, <laughs> nice thought, I guess. But, it, you know, he's creating details in the text. So if you have a message Bible, it's probably not worth... Uh, I mean, it may be interesting to read, but it's not a serious translation. Now, you want to read more on these because we blew through these because we didn't have a lot of time. I would recommend two books for you. One would be Ron Rhodes' book. If you've ever read any of Ron Rhodes' stuff, he's very to the point, very readable, very easy. And he covers about 20 translations in here. I'm not sure how many, but it's a good book. It's a very easy read here. It's cheap, paperback, complete guide to Bible translations, how they were developed understanding the differences, finding the right one for you. And the other one from a guy you may trust and know up at Master's Seminary is Dr. Thomas, Robert Thomas. Uh, Though Ron Rhodes includes the ESV, Thomas's was before the ESV, so it's not represented in his book. But How to Choose a Bible Translation, Making Sense of the Proliferation of Bible Translations. Those are two decent books you might want to have. Now, with the very little time we have left, let's talk about the English Standard Version. You should know this by now, but the phrase they like, not only is it a a formal equivalent, but they like to go even further and say it's an essentially literal translation. It's an essentially literal translation. Okay, so when we move in 2010, which is next month, from the NIV to the ESV, we're moving from a dynamic equivalent to a formal equivalent Instead of a thought-for-thought, thought, a more of a word-for-word, and the words they love as a translation committee was an essentially literal translation. Now, the 2002 was actually copyrighted in 2001. It was published in 2002, and it was revised in about 360 places in 2007, which is a little bit frustrating because there's still 2002 editions being sold. And I don't know, I mean, they'll probably hate me for saying this, but... Um, I want you to have a 2007. So if for some reason you have a 2002, I'll tell you this for sure. If you bought it here, I will exchange it for you. Uh, Just go to the bookstore and show them. What you need to do is look right here on your Bible. If you have an ESV, you need to check this right now. On the table of contents page, on the, well, it's across from that, on the, on the um, um, credits page, there's a little line right here. You can't see it, but let me, uh, I'll, I'll zoom in. Here it is. It should say the ESV text edition 2007. If you have an ESV and it says 2002, and it will, you see it'll say 2002 up here at the top. I can't get there, but right there. It'll also say 2007. If yours doesn't say 2007, I want you to get a 2007, and um, we'll make you a deal at the bookstore if you want to trade it in. And if you bought it here, we'll do it, obviously, for free. And they'll probably be mad at me for saying that, but, um, but we'll do it. 
because we want you to have the right translation. It's very important. Uh, we might as well get the latest and greatest. Okay, back to this. Obviously, it utilized all manuscript evidence that's available today. Good thing that I like about it, and you should too, is it retains theological terminology. It doesn't try to water it down or move it away or you know, simplify it, and that's good. We have words like justification and propitiation and repentance. Those are all kept, whereas in other translations that are for, uh, thought for thought, oftentimes we don't have those anymore. NIV, for instance, loses the concept of propitiation. It doesn't lose the concept. Well, it does lose the concept. It translates it atoning sacrifice, but in reality, the word propitiation carries with it a sense of satisfaction. So ESV keeps words like that, propitiation, and makes us wrestle with them. I like that. Uh, the criticism on the ESV, and probably Mark Strauss down at Bethel Seminary is probably the most vocal opponent of the ESV, it really focuses on English, really not the scholastic work, but it focuses on the English that it says is too close to the Greek and Hebrew, so close that it makes it seem silly at times. And, and Mark de delivered a paper at the uh, Theological Evangelical Society and really ripped it. But in my mind, and I've read his stuff, I, you know, I'll take that, I guess. If you want to say the big problem with the ESV is it's too literal at times, uh, you know, I can agree with some of his criticism, but that's basically the criticism we have today of the ESV. It is obviously a solid translation team. And if you look on page 66, I give you some of their philosophy and uh, manuscript background, which should, should make sense now to you after this course. And on the next page there, you'll see the translation team. Guys that you should know, my Greek prophet Talbot's there, Clint Arnold, David Baker, Barrick from Master Seminaries on there, uh, Irv Buzanitz, some of you know him and taking classes from him at, at Master's. So it's a good, solid team. Harold Honer, next page, there's more here. Lots of guys. I mean, if you read any theology, there's a great guy. Kostenberger, Leon Morris, Ray Ortland. I mean, these are kind of the heavy hitters. Thomas Schreiner at uh, the Baptist Seminary. Silva, bottom right corner. So anyway, good, solid team. These are the who's who in, in, in linguistics and languages today. And they go on to page 69. And then it's got a hearty reception, and I printed some of the reception from it. John Piper, Sproul, Stoll, Daryl Bach, Bridges, Zachariah, Brian Chapel, Lutzer, Grant Osborne. I mean, there's a lot of guys here that you may know, and um, I mean, it's a well-liked translation, and it's being heartily received. So that's a good thing. Now, obviously, I've told you this. We're going to start using it on January the 1st, and I'd like you to have one. Please, don't be a nonconformist. You, you can have 18 NASs in your car, but come into the church and, and at least bring one ESV with you, please. It's all so helpful when we can be reading off the same English translation. Now, some things you may not know about is the web resources on the, on the ESV are really good. As a matter of fact, the, um, if you buy an ESV study Bible... In that box, you should have had a passcode to get onto the ESV Study Bible web website. Don't throw that away. Sign up for that. I know some of you are afraid to give your email address. Sign up for that. It has all the notes there. And you can put your own notes there and the text there. And it has the audio of the entire Bible. And that's about an $80 value right there. So you've got to, to utilize their, their website, esvstudybible.org. And, and you can pay, I guess, a little something to get in that if you don't have an ESV study Bible. Uh, also, I need to let you know, for the first time in 10 years, I have redone 
the, uh, and our team, obviously, I don't want to take credit for printing it up because I didn't print it up, but we've reprinted the reading guide. Now, this was a bold move for us. We've, we've changed it all around. So the way we've been reading through the Bible in a year is now going to follow the, there's like eight different reading guides on the ESV site. Uh, and the reason I wanted to go with this one, it's the Old Testament, New Testament. Read Old Testament every day, New Testament every day. It won't be the same as in the past, the same order, but it'll get us through the same Bible in the same amount of time. But the reason I'm using this is that if you go to the ESV site, uh, you can do one of many things. You can download the entire reading schedule to your calendar. You can, uh, you can have it emailed to you every day. You can have, you know, which is great, the whole text on your email box. Um, there's all kinds of things that would be, will be great to synchronize with the ESV Old Testament, New Testament reading plan. So these are going to, we've already just got those back from the printer today, uh, but you'll get them on the weekend or next weekend, or you can drop by the church office and get these, but the new reading guides. Plus it'll be on our website, and our website will correspond with it all, so that'll be good. Now, with three minutes to go, if you want to take the whole thing that we've done from the beginning, at least for the text side, of, of getting God's thoughts on paper to translation in a visual book that I think is a great holiday gift for yourself, okay? Um, Christmas gift. 89 pages. This is not long, but it's got some fantastic pictures in it. How we got our Bible by uh, Clint Arnold, who was one of the translators in the ESV, but this is really not anything about the ESV in this. But it'll take you back to St. Catherine's Monastery. Tell you a little about Tischendorf. It'll revisit Dead Sea Scrolls. One page per topic. Great pictures. You can read that book now if you've been through our course and be familiar with it all, and it'll just enrich and affirm and redrive the points home of what we've been talking about. It's not really a scholarly work, though you'll need some background, I think, to go, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I think it's a, it's a great thing to read. It'd be great if you read it in the next couple of months enjoyed it. I've read this uh, to our kids at night. I know they're elementary school kids, but it's only a small bit of reading and some great pictures to look at, and, um, and it's a great thing. And I know we have some in our, in our bookstore, too, or you can order it online, but a ton of great, great pictures in that. And I get no kickbacks on any of the books that I recommend. You know that, right? This is all for your edification. All right. Now, I've left lots of time for questions. I haven't. Sorry. So with two minutes to go, you'll have to catch me on the weekends with the questions. Let's pray. God, thanks for getting us through this set of uh, very important topics from Revelation where you give your thoughts to your prophets to write down all the way to the translation work. We do thank you for the history of the English Bible. We thank you for men like uh, even Gutenberg used in your plan to get us the Bible in movable type let the Reformation spread. We thank you for John Reynolds standing up in Hampton Court. We thank you for uh, John Wycliffe, obviously, William Tyndale. We thank you for Erasmus doing his hard work in that small little office there in, in Cambridge. Um, God, we thank you for the work that has gone into this, many that have died for it. William uh, Tyndale's bones being burned you know, after his death 44 years later. And... Um, Tyndale uh, being burned at the stake. Um, God, we, uh, we have a great spiritual heritage.
that got us the word of God in our language. We're not under the oppression of an ecclesiastical authority that's able to tell us whatever they want to tell us um, and expecting us to believe it. We can check everything from our church leaders according to the, uh, the word, like good Bereans, searching the scriptures daily to see if what they say is true. God, we thank you so much for the way you've orchestrated our lives to put us in this particular place at this particular time with computers and websites and people emailing scripture to us every single day. Things like that are wonderful advantages. Now, we know to whom much is given, much is required, so we want to be faithful stewards to let the word of Christ richly dwell in us, to be filled with our, up to the brim in our hearts with the word of God. And when people are seeking their own impressions or ideas or thoughts, may we return, as Isaiah says, to the law and to the testimony, to know what the truth is. And as our theme verse for our church says, in Psalm 43, may we be passionate about the light and the truth uh, shining forth from your word giving us clarity about who you are. So thanks for this great um, topic that we've been covering. Thanks for this series. We just pray that you drive it home in our hearts. Pray that some might even read more on these topics and just be even more um, enriched and edified by the great things that have happened in your great plan to get us your great word. We love it very much. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.